Welcome to episode 84 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. So today we are talking about reviews. Reviews! Everybody's favorite topic. Yes. So full disclosure, Kelly and I recorded this a while back, Mm -hmm. but then we decided to scrap it. Yeah, I was really sick at the time, and I listened back to my audio, and it was disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) And... Just all kinds of horrible, sick, wet noises that nobody wants to have to listen to. And so I texted JJ and I was like, can we please have a do-over? Yeah, and I'm pretty sure I must have been running on very little sleep because video games. So Mm. I think it's fine. We're just going to redo redo the review episode. Yeah, for the better. We usually, this has happened to us occasionally in our run, we'll we'll re-record something for various reasons, and usually it's actually nice because we've had like a trial run of what we're going to say. Yes, so we have a better idea of how we're going to structure the the podcast this time. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so reviews, which are a necessary evil, I guess, (laughs) if you want to, if you want to look at them that way. Um... What I guess types I'm, of reviews are there? Maybe we can start by breaking that yeah. down. So there are trade reviews and consumer reviews. So when we talk about trade reviews, we're usually talking about reviews that come from one of the industry publications. For example, uh, Publishers Weekly or Kirkus or Booklist, School Library Journal, um, also things like Romantic Times or, um, there are numerous publications that are kind of industry focused or New York Times would be considered, I guess, a trade review as well. Um, not very many people get New York Times reviews, but you know, like, uh, there, so these are trade publications and trade reviews are used by people generally buying for collections like libraries, for example. Um, so there are multiple reasons. So let's focus on the trade piece first. What do we use trade reviews for, aside from the library building stuff? That's definitely number one, collection building, things like that. Um, aside from that, um, pull quotes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> pull <laughs> Pulling quotes from reviews is an art form. (laughs) And, you know, I think very few of us that are not immersed in this industry, you know, the people who um, are publishing professionals or authors who are pouring over their reviews, we'll talk later on whether or not you should even do that, but of course they do. Um, But for those of us who aren't really in the publishing industry, the general consumer, the average reader, does not go around reading trade reviews. But what they do see are pull quotes on book jackets. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's on the front cover, sometimes it's on the back or the inside flap, you know, but they'll be uh, like dot, 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 
fantastic world, dot, 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 <laughs> Publishers Weekly, or like, right. you know, whatever else. There's like a phrase, or like, you know, like, a, there's usually lots of ellipses in there, um, and that's because they're pulling the choicest bits of the quote out of the review to construct um, something that is flattering and interesting and will attract the eye of a consumer in a bookstore. Um, you can get a decent pull quote even out of the most horrific trade review. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's true. <laughs> I think that, I mean, there are multiple reasons. And to be honest, I'm not even sure the con- consumer really pays attention to a lot of the yeah. pull quotes on a cover. It's a little bit like blurbs, you know. They're really kind of used to get interest from sales, marketing, library, um, that's, it's easier for them to look at that than it is because a lot of, uh, most trade reviews do come out before a book is released. Like Mm -hmm. it may not be necessarily be available to the public. Uh, but we usually get trade reviews anywhere from generally around three months before publication. So, which kind of coincides, I think, um, with sales conference. So you often will have some trades at least in by sales conference. And so you can put that in all of your tip sheets or whatever and show the sales team, these are the reviews that they're getting. This is what they're thinking about. Um, the title, it's getting buzz or stars or whatever, you know, it's, 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 you know, that's just basically, this is how it's being received before. And then sales will take that information and then pitch it to their accounts and everything else. So, all right, so let's talk about stars, because I mentioned that. What is a star review? A star is a way of, um, that trade publications have of setting a review apart and basically saying this book is highly recommended. Um, Mm -hmm. Not all positive reviews are starred reviews, so you can still have a very positive review and have it not be starred. Um, but starred reviews are a way of setting something, um, aside, drawing particular attention to it. They are usually, starred reviews are usually the first place that curators will go, you know, librarians and teachers will want to make sure that they have, um, all the starred books in their collections, you know, and then from there they'll kind of pick and choose among the non-starred, uh, books. So yeah, it's just kind of a way of of elevating a certain title. Yeah. And the criteria for a starred review is kind of nebulous. Mm. And I think it depends on publication to publication. And it depends on the reviewer, to be frank. So let's also talk about the structure of trade reviews. Who reviews for trade reviews? And... For things like School Library Journal, it's actually teachers and librarians who review these titles for that publication. Uh, Booklist, I believe, is also similar. Booklist does hire teachers and librarians to review titles. Um, And I'm not sure who reviews for Publishers Weekly. And I think Romantic Times would either also be librarians and maybe just kind of influential readers would also review for Romantic Times. And I'm also not sure what the criteria is for Kirkus, but I know that they have put out calls for reviewers before, 
And there is no requirement that you be an educator mm-hmm. or a librarian to review for Kirkus. Um, and so how does this work if you are a trade reviewer? Generally, you let your editor know, whoever is running the section of whatever book that you're, or whatever section that you're writing for, what sorts of books you like. Um, and then they will do their best to match you mm-hmm. with a title that probably you would respond to. Um, because not every book is for everyone, right? There are yeah. plenty of books out there that I acknowledge as being excellent and that I could probably write a decent review of. But if it didn't resonate with me, then it's not going to be a very useful review. And it, this isn't to say that, you know, they want every review to be positive. It's not necessarily that. It's just that, like, if, for, like, for example, I read a ton of YA, so I would probably say, and, and specifically I read a ton of YA fantasy, so I, if I were a reviewer, that's what I would ask for. I say I read a lot of YA fantasy, um, not a ton of contemporary. So if, and then, so something, if something contemporary does come my way, I could review it whether or not I liked it, but then I, I wouldn't necessarily be able to give a, a fair review about what it's like compared to other titles, you know, or other books in its genre or category. Like if you were to give me a literary novel, I wouldn't be able to review that in any way aside from did I like it or not like it. And that's a completely subjective thing. Um, so that's what they, that's why they would try and match their reviewers with something that you feel comfortable reviewing. Um, and also that the reason like your familiar, your familiarity with the genre category would also be put you in a better position about being able to say whether or not this is quality Mm -hmm. because you've read so many in that category that you probably know this doesn't like compared to other titles with a similar premise or whatever, you know, that's kind of what they're looking for. So that's generally how trade reviews are structured. Obviously, there are blind spots to this. Um, I think there is a bit of more of a concerted effort to match reviewers with authors or books with content with the same cultural or, you know, marginalized background. There is an attempt or a move toward that. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's still going to be a good match. It's kind of an imperfect system. And to be frank, not there's not enough people mm-hmm. from marginalized backgrounds who are actually reviewing. Because most trade reviews don't pay very much. Like, Kirkus doesn't pay very much. No. Um, and I think sometimes, like even booklist or school library and I, I don't I don't believe school library journal pays so it's not like you can be a professional reviewer um and if they do pay it's very little so you know a lot of people yeah, it's, just a do it for the honor. it's not a profession it's yeah yeah or they're you're doing it for the honor of being able to review for mm-hmm. one of these things it's not you know so there's something to be said for that I think um Because a lot of times, so the whole thing about trade reviews is that even though it's a trade, it's still one person who reviews the book and then submits it to an editor who makes sure it fits within whatever editorial standard of the publication that they are. For example, like Romantic Romantic Times is obviously going to review with an eye toward romantic content, Mm -hmm. you know, that sort of a thing. But it doesn't mean that there is a consensus on the book. It's not everybody 
in-house or everybody at this publication has read this title and therefore there is a consensus about the book. That's not what happens at a trade. It's they the editors generally use their best judgment to pick the person they think is the best suited to review this type of book. Sometimes that works out very well for me. Whoever they pick to review my books at Booklist seems to get what I'm trying to do with my books. And then other times there are people who just won't get your books. If you actually look at my trade reviews, Publishers Weekly panned Winter Song. <laughs> I mean, Did you get I a got, decent pull quote, though? I got a most amazing pull quote about it, out of it, though. So <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't actually matter that they panned it. Um, but that's what I mean. Like, you know, sometimes they do get what you're trying to do with your writing, and sometimes they'll miss it entirely, and who knows. So while trade reviews are important as kind of an early barometer, I guess, particularly for the sales force trying to sell your book into the into these accounts, it's just as subjective as any other review. You know, there's no objective good to a book. I mean, there are things that we can agree on make good writing collectively as a whole, but also culturally over time that shifts what we consider good writing. Like if you read books from, I don't know if you were an English major like I was, if you read books from like the early 18, like the 18th century or something, that's just a different style. There's a lot of telling, there's, you know, and just what we accept as good writing does evolve over time. So it's just a snapshot of what we think is good at this particular time as determined by one person under the aegis of one publication. <laughs> so, um, yes. Yeah. I don't know. Is there anything we want to say briefly about trade reviews? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, again, I think, like you mentioned, authors will most likely see a lot of these reviews before they go public. A lot of times your editor will kind of forward them along in an email, usually, you know, with some kind of preface like, oh, this is Kirkus, don't worry, they hate everyone, or, (laughs) (laughs) you know, or whatever else. Um, Try not to get too hung up on reviews, and and that's also going to come into play when we talk about consumer reviews in a minute. Um... You know, yeah, I guess maybe that we can wait until after the consumer part to go too deep into that, (laughs) that angle of things. But, uh, yeah, I mean, as I said, the weight placed on trade reviews is important pre-publication. Yeah. But the average reader is not going to see them, really. No, no. Uh, The only thing I can think of, too, is that some contracts, not all, um, that have a bonus structure will sometimes pay a bonus advance for starred reviews from specific publications. So not just any starred review, it would say in your contract, you know, if you get a starred review in Publishers Weekly, you'll get a bonus or whatever else. So that can be nice. Um, But again, bonus structures are not um, a part of every contract. But if yours has one, that's great. That's one place you can negotiate bonuses for sure is, is stars. Or awards sometimes, like award mm-hmm, nominations. Yeah. Um, and even then awards, which is a not really... I don't really know enough about awards to warrant, I think, an entire episode. No. But awards are... 
those they're nominated by it depends for example the hugo award is nominated by members of the science fiction writers of america (laughs) yep but something like the nebulas which is also a science fiction fantasy award is determined by a board so even then awards are subjective so i know a lot it particularly a lot of writers who get sort of maybe bummed out like I didn't get any starred reviews I didn't get any award nominations or you know that's just sometimes it's the luck of the draw you just it wasn't you know someone didn't see it or whatever and particularly for something like the Hugos it really does run like an Oscar campaign like people do like submit their work for consideration and you do have to submit work for consideration um and then people kind of lobby for you know, because the, the members of SFWA, and there's quite a few, are the ones that are voting on the Hugos. So um, that's kind of the only real thing I could say about that. I think other things like the Prince and the Morris Awards, those are, again, a board, uh, generally librarians, teachers, and I think some authors, maybe those who have won awards before. I think the Morris Committee includes a Morris Award winner from the previous year, I think. So, you know, it all sort of depends, and um, sometimes it is the will of the people that determines an award, and sometimes it is a a bunch of experienced curators, I guess, Mm -hmm. is kind of where you can put it down to. So that's kind of the industry side of things. What about consumer reviews? (laughs) So consumer reviews are reviews from readers. They are, you know, the reviews on Amazon, the reviews on Goodreads, the reviews on blogs or YouTube or whatever. Um, the, the reviews coming directly from readers are consumer reviews. <laughs> um, and this is the part where I feel like authors kind of go off the deep end sometimes. And just like we said initially, you know, trade reviews are for industry people. Consumer reviews are for consumers. They're for other readers. Um, No reviews anywhere are for you, the author. Yes, agreed. (laughs) They might be nice. You might find them flattering. They may benefit you in some way, uh, but they're not for you. You are not the intended market of reviews. And I think that that is something that you need to learn and begin believing immediately. Like from moment one of your publication journey, reviews are not for me. Make it your mantra. (laughs) Say it when you wake (laughs) up in the morning. Um, Because um, they're really not. People write reviews um, to help other people find things that they'll connect with. And I'm a big fan of reviews, not just, you know, with books and other types of media, but like with everything. Like if I go to, you know, Amazon or someplace and I'm going to buy something and there's only like two reviews and then another thing has like 75 reviews, I'm going to read like a good portion of the 75 and see, you know, what problems did people experience with this item, you know, what worked well, Mm -hmm. what didn't. And it's the same thing with media, with, you know, movies and music and especially books. Um, People are talking about their own personal response to a work. 
in the hopes that sharing their response to that work can help other people either avoid it if it's best for them to avoid it or pick it up if it's something that they think they'd connect to. Um, and so they're not for you as an author. And I really think authors probably shouldn't read them. And I know this is like an impossible ask and also super hypocritical, right? Because like, like as if I haven't gone to my own query tracker page and seen what people have said about me as an agent, like there's just, if somebody read our reviews for this <laughs> podcast, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'm obsessed with reviews for this podcast. It's, it's such an impossible ask to, to not want to know what people are saying about you. Right. And especially with a book where you've spent oftentimes years working on this book and now it's out in the world and it, it belongs to more people than just you now. And so of course, you know, you hope that people connect with it the way that you intended and you want to see evidence of that. Um, and it's fulfilling when, you know, you get someone who connects to your work in that way and understands what you were trying to do. That said, I think it is a rabbit hole that you can go down that has no bottom. <laughs> You'll just keep yeah. falling forever. And I think it's part of human nature, too, that, like, we could read a hundred good reviews and one bad review, and the one bad review is the one that is the one we remember. Yeah. So I think there comes a point where it's just not healthy. <laughs> and, you know, maybe you can talk about it more from the perspective of an author who has, you know, reviews and figure out, you know, if you have any recommendations for people or what. I don't know, because I'm not necessarily somebody who seeks reviews. Granted, I did when Winter Song was coming out. I, I wanted to see how it was being received. And that's natural curiosity, I you know, I think. Um, but the thing is, it's it all depends, because the first time you read a bad review of your own work from a consumer, it, it always stings in its own way. And it is, and like Kelly said, you could read a dozen great reviews, but that one negative one is the one that's going to stick. And then if you start to read enough negative ones, then I think you are unable to find your way out and to find what you wanted to say. Now, my own personal situation was a little bit different simply because I did not have the luxury of writing Shadow Song before Winter Song came out. A lot of authors can write their second because they're in a multi-book deal or whatever. Often do write their second book before they write before the first one is published. I could not escape what people thought of my first book, and to be completely honest, it was really hard to find out find out what I wanted to say with my second book because it, there was no way that I could write Shadow Song that was going to be just for me. I was always going to hear the voices of what everybody, even positive ones, like people who liked one aspect of my book. Well, what if I don't give enough of that in my second book and blah, 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 blah. And I think part of the reason it was so hard for me to write that second book was because of all the feedback that I had seen. So that is one reason, honestly, to try and avoid reading reviews of your own work. It's simply just to help you continue to write. Um, 
And and by right, I mean write for yourself because ultimately, and I'm really proud of Shadow Song because that was the book I wrote for me. And it wasn't because of what I thought other people wanted from me. It was, this is the story I needed to tell. It took a long time to get there. I think it would have taken a long time anyway, but I think it might have been shortened if I had not seen what other people thought of my first book. Um, and also, I'm the kind of... Okay, so I like to describe this. like, Are you the kind of person who hate-watches things? Or hate-reads things? I... I don't know if I am now. There was a point in my life when I did, for sure. Because <laughs> I'm not one of them. Like, if I don't like something, then I just, I nope out pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and ultimately, I reached that point with reviews, with consumer reviews. I just was sort of like, yeah, I'm out. Like, I I wanted to see initially how things were being received, and then I just checked out. Um, not everybody is like that. I know for certain a lot of my friends do go on Goodreads, you know, and they, they're compelled to continue to read or whatever, either good or bad. Um, and a lot of them are the people who like to hate watch things or hate read things. And I was just like, why waste all of this energy on something you hate? Like, why? It's, but that's me. That's just me as a person. If I feel something is taking too much emotional energy from me, I'm going to just check out. So I don't know. Um, I mean, for Shadow Song, I read some reviews initially, but I also just didn't care by that point. And and the other thing is, it's like, I think there is some good initially to reading reviews, even the negative ones. Partially because, and you learn very quickly which one of them, which ones are constructive negative reviews mm. and just reviews with a bunch of gif reactions of hate. Um... Because you can learn a lot from a negative review that maybe illuminated a blind spot that you had that you didn't consider before. And it may not be... Actually, what I feel like is worse than a one-star review is like a two-star review. <laughs> because they're just like, there's merit in this, but this, this, and this, and this, and this didn't work for me. And I was like, ouch, man. <laughs> uh, um, but I think it can sometimes help you be a better writer, one. But then I think there's also an inoculation process that happens because you will be unable to escape negative reviews because you can block Goodreads, you can block your Amazon reviews, you can do all of that stuff, but people still find ways to tag you in them, either on Twitter or Instagram or whatever other social media you're on. Uh, my favorites are the ones that are tagged in foreign languages because like the foreign readers who've read my book uh, and some of them who don't like it will just tag me. And I was like, you do realize that most social media now has a translate option at the bottom. <laughs> I don't even have to go to Babblefish. I can just do yeah, it right here. Like, I can just click on the little thing and it will translate this comment for me. Um, you know, it, I don't love when people tag me in negative reviews. Partially because what? How am I supposed to respond to this? Like, yeah. do you want me to acknowledge that I read it, or do you not know that it's me running my own social media? <laughs> that could be it too, for all I know. Um, I don't quite understand why people tag authors in negative reviews. Or, to be frank, I don't really care to be tagged in positive reviews either. Like, every once in a while, I'll read a positive review that really does get what I was trying to do, 
and that's nice, but a lot of reviews that I see that are positive are also, I really liked it, and that's all they say. And I was like, well, that's nice, but um, it's not really useful for me, so, like, it just clogs up my mentions or whatever, but, like, or, you know, like, my notifications on Instagram or whatever, so I was like, oh, that's that's nice, I guess. Um, I do think that there is an inoculation process, because I can see a negative review about my book, and I'm like, eh, whatever. <laughs> I also, but I, I do think that is part of understanding what is constructive and what is just it didn't hit with somebody some like every book no book will be universally beloved it's just impossible you know people are going to be there are some people who will love it there are some people who will loathe it and then a lot of people will be somewhere in between Mm -hmm. and some people may just be indifferent as well you know, and that's just the way it is with any piece of media. You have yeah. a range of reactions. And I think once you understand that a negative review is just one in a spectrum of reviews, then does it really matter? I don't know. It's also not your business in a way. Like, yeah, I, know I, that's, agree. I know that sounds weird because it's like your book, but... The way that people interact with what you create is not your business. Like that is that belongs to someone else, and it's not about you. And not you know, it's not yeah. Yeah, it's like, and I remember like if I want to talk about a book that I love, knowing that the author can see that is weird. It's like so. It's like your parents reading over your shoulder or something. You're just like, do, do you mind? Like, you know. And I just like, and I of course I'm approaching it as a fan. You know, growing up in different fandoms, and if, you know, if, if J.K. Rowling could see all the posts I made about Harry Potter, I don't think I like that idea. <laughs> like, no. Um, so I try to respect that as well, but also as a reader, I don't think I like the idea of an author knowing what I thought about their book. Mm-hmm. And also just like, because everybody's reaction is going to be, not, you know, like, I'm not going to give everything glowing reviews. You know, I'm going to dislike some things and I'm going to be indifferent to some things. And it just is what it is. And that the reviews that I make or that, you know, or it's, you know, when you recommend books to people, right? When you Mm -hmm. recommend books to your friends, you can say like, okay, it had this issue or it had this issue and I didn't, but I loved it or, you know, or it was very good, but I don't know. I just didn't connect to it or, you know, that's like when you're talking to your friends and you say, I'm recommending this book to you or not recommending this book to you, you just want to know what your friend's opinions are. And that's essentially what consumer reviews are. They're just opinions for other people, you know, it's not for you. And this is the one thing that I think the absolute one thing that as an author that you must get into your head, which is do not respond. I was just going to ask you under what circumstances is it okay to respond to a review? You don't never, never, (laughs) ever, ever, never. If you absolutely have to say something, that's when you get your group text with your very best friends and you, you know, blow off some steam privately and that's it. You do not respond to reviews. I think, well, I'll put it this way. Responding to a specific review, you should never do. Mm -mm. But if there is something that is coming up 
coming up mm. over and over again. I do think that there are ways you can address it. You can address it in future editions of a book. Mm-hmm. You can address it on your website or make a statement on social media or something. There's that aspect of it. But there's no reason to respond to a single review mm-hmm. to to an individual. You can respond to a pattern, perhaps, but I don't think you should respond to an individual. Again, that's like mom reading over your shoulder, and moreover, that's mom reading over your shoulder and saying you're reading it wrong. Like, Yeah, <laughs> and there's a weird um, power imbalance, and I feel like authors default to the assumption that like, oh, this is a big name book blogger or, you know, booktuber or whatever. And they're so popular and they've got thousands of people following them and they're trashing my book. And that's not fair. That is not the power imbalance. You are the one with the power. You are the author Mm -hmm. and the reviewer is not. And, you know, whether they're a a reviewer with a million followers and they're super popular um, or whether they're, you know, somebody on, you know, with three Twitter followers who tweeted something about your book one time, doesn't matter. Um, as the author of the book, you are the person with power in this situation and shouldn't respond to an individual. Even when they get it wrong. Mm-hmm. It's just not your place. No. Mm-mm. You know, and we've talked on this podcast before when we talk about craft and writing um, that ultimately your writing has to stand on its own. You cannot be there and correct every single person as they read or tell everyone how to interpret things or what it is that you meant or what your intentions were. That's just impossible. And different people are going to have different relationships with your material and there's nothing you can do about that. Yeah, and it's also like people are like, oh, but what if they get facts wrong in a review? It still doesn't matter. You don't respond. You don't correct that. You, it just, it doesn't matter, honestly. If they get the facts wrong, they get the facts wrong. It is what it is. No single review has the ability to tank a book. It may not necessarily feel like that, but it's true. Not one single review Again, there could be patterns that emerge from reviews. Mm -hmm. And I think, obviously, reviewers can be influenced by each other. Um, But not one person has the ability to make or break your book. No trade publication, no single trade publication, has the ability to make or break your book. Like I said, Publishers Weekly panned Winter Song. Um, and booklets start it, you know, so it's, it's one, it's just one data point Mm -hmm. in a, in a, in the vast array of data that's coming in. So even though it may feel extremely significant to you, particularly if, if it's someone with a, a large social influence, it may feel big to you, but I don't know. I I don't think so because there are plenty of books that it seems like the public opinion is they don't like it that I've loved, you know, there and the other way around, there are plenty of books where the public opinion seems to be good that I just didn't like, you know, it just is what it is. And 
it didn't, if I was going to, here's the other thing. If I was going to read a book I, that, and even if I saw bad reviews, but I wanted to read the book anyway, I'm probably just going to read the book anyway. Right. Like, I feel like that's what people do. I think if they just were like, I, I think sometimes there's this culture or this idea that, oh, if this book, if you didn't like this book, then I guess I won't be picking it up either. And sometimes it happens. Like, um, <laughs> Rosh, uh, Roshni Chak, she was talking to me about this movie, The Neon Demon, um, uh, which I'd seen. And she was like, oh, what'd you, um, I'm thinking of seeing this movie. What'd you think? And I was like, oh, I hated it. <laughs> I thought it was terrible. Um, she's like, oh, and she watched it anyway. So, you know, like <laughs> that's, I think that's it. Like you, you can just offer your opinion, but it won't necessarily affect somebody's decision if they were not going to read it in the first place or if they were going to read it in the first place. I think a positive review can persuade somebody. Mm-hmm. But I'm not necessarily sure a negative review will not persuade someone. I mean, I, I'm sure it goes both ways. But I, I've definitely been meh on something. and But then I've had enough people say, oh, you should check it out, you should check it out, you should check it out, that I picked it up. Um, and that's not just books. It could be movies, TV mm-hmm. shows, or any kind of other kind of media. It just, you know. We have a whole podcast about how that happened to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You can listen to to Kelly's entire <laughs> awakening to Avatar: The Last Airbender. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, you know, you just you think, oh, maybe this won't be my thing, but then enough people persuade you. That's that can definitely happen. And like I said, I guess it works the other way around. Of course, I can't necessarily think of examples off the top of my head. Um, but I think I think. There's far less weight on a review than you might personally feel mm-hmm. about it. So it's kind of my piece to say about trade review, not trade consumer reviews. Um, I really don't read them. Yeah. Like I event like every once in a while I will, but I don't. But that's also like I said, my own personality. I'm not necessarily sure for those who feel compelled to do so. Mm. Honestly, I don't know. It it would be hard for me. Like, if I ever wrote a book, so much of my existence is built on external validation that I'm sure that reading reviews would become quickly a problem for me personally. I've heard of people doing things like having, like, a screener, like having someone else check the reviews for you. And that way you kind of know they're being checked and they can kind of filter the information for you. But you yourself don't have to go and read these reviews. And I think for someone like me, that might be, if I had a trusted friend or somebody that was willing to do that for me, that might be the route that I would go. Because I think the not knowing would devour me. And yet, if I started down that hole, I don't think I'd ever claw my way out. So <laughs> so that might be something that I know other people have done and it might work for you. If you, like me, are are very tied to external validation to get on with your life. Um, so, yeah. I think maybe just setting time. Yeah. Aside, like, if you know that you can't resist looking, then maybe just say, okay, I'm just going to look for an hour once a week or something. Yeah. So, at least you get your curiosity scratched 
and not subject yourself to the spiral that happens, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I, it's not for me, so I'm not going to bother. Um, and it's, it's funny, it's, it's things like Amazon ranking as well, which I know a lot of people obsessively check and I didn't care. Um, Roshni did it for me. <laughs> not because I asked her to, but because she's like, I have to know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I just, I just don't, it's, I don't care. Um, and I, it, I, honestly, I don't believe that's me being jaded or cynical. I think that's just me as a person. I just Oh, no, care. I definitely think that's just you as a person. <laughs> like, um, you know, and that's the thing. It's, it, that's always the hardest part about writing is how to balance writing something for yourself and publishing it for other people. And that is just a line that you have to figure out over time. And how to navigate that boundary for yourself. But ultimately I always write for myself first. And if I'm the if I'm the most pleased, <laughs> then I think I've done my job. But not everybody has that philosophy and that's okay too. So <laughs> um anything any last thing we want to talk about when it comes to reviews? I don't think so. Okay. So then what are we working on? Good question. What are we working on? Um, I can't talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) So there. (laughs) All the regular agenting stuff plus stuff I can't talk about. Still working on your new series? Yes, I'm enjoying it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to savor this time when I like the book because I know further <laughs> down the road, I will hate it. So right now, right now it's good. So I'm trying to live in the moment <laughs> of liking it. <laughs> I approve. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's what I'm working on. Um, what are we, what are we reading? I actually just got a ton of books in from the library that I have not started and now I have to choose which ones to start first, which is always um, a difficult decision. But um, I have uh, Tess of the Road by Rachel Hartman, which is the sequel That's to what I'm reading. Serafina. Uh-huh. Um, that came out like a long time ago. It has been a long time waiting for this book. Yeah. Well, I guess so... not, she had, it's not the direct sequel. It's like a Set in it's, the a, same it's, se- it's a sequel universe. companion. It's about yeah. Serafina's sister. Um, I also am I'm reading that. So Serafina came out in 2012? I think it was 2012. And then Shadow Scale, which was the direct sequel yeah. to Serafina, came out in 2015. Yeah, yes. So now it's 2018 and Tess of the Road has come out. So I am super stoked. I really loved Serafina and Shadow Scale. I loved those books. So... I'm super excited to read that. That's also what I have on mine. What else do you have? What else do I have? I've also got um, Blood of a Thousand Stars by Rhoda Belza, which is the sequel to Empress um, of a Thousand Skies that just recently came out. And then I also have Eliza and Her Monsters by Francesca. Oh, Francesca Zappia. Zappia. Mm -hmm. Which um, a friend recommended to me personally, actually. Um, I had not heard much about that book, but she told me that she loved it and uh, told me to read it. So, word of mouth, it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have Tessa the Road. Um, 
which I have not yet started. Well, I started like the first two pages and fell asleep, but uh, <laughs> classic. I know it's always like, I'm gonna read before bed, <sighs> and then I have to like go back a couple of pages because I can't remember what I read last. It's <laughs> oh, terrible. Man. We're getting old. I know it's awful. Uh, I also finished The Bells by Danielle Clayton, which was excellent. Oh. Um, let's see what else do I have? I feel like I bought a lot of books, but I haven't started them yet mm-hmm. um but like i said it's nice to be able to read <laughs> it's nice to be able to enjoy reading and to want to read rather than like feeling obligated to read which is what i felt uh mostly last year so yeah the bells which i just finished and um Tess of the road are my two so any off many recommendations i do have some um this weekend, I binged the entirety of the Queer Eye reboot on Netflix. I never watched the original, uh, so I have no basis of comparison. Um, it was just a lot of, like, eight hours, not eight hours even, it's like 30-minute episodes. It was just a delightful, really super emotional, cathartic binge. I cried at every single episode. (laughs) I've read a lot of um, reaction pieces to it, which have been really interesting in framing my thinking about the show um, after watching it, because um, I myself am not queer, um, and so... I missed a lot of things about the show and my initial watch, so reading some of these um, reaction pieces to it have been really interesting. It's set in Atlanta, whereas I think the first season was set in New York, and um, by virtue of its setting, they are helping a lot of men who identify as conservatives, um, some self-identified Trump supporters. Um, and so there is, um, absolutely homophobia and racism, um, that the fab five, as they're called, have to confront in the show. Um, but it's still, it's really interesting. I'll have to I'll have to link to the show notes some of the response pieces that I've read that have helped me think through some of this because ultimately, um, you know, everything is cast and shot in such a way that like there's always happy endings and nothing is ever too ugly or too um, mm-hmm. insurmountable. And that you know the the they're confronted with these issues and they kind of work through them and they find common ground and you know it's all very heartwarming. Um, but a lot of the reaction pieces that I said that I read have addressed the fact that most of the common ground finding is done by um, the Fab Five, who are the racial minorities and the um, the gay men, whereas the straight white men are not necessarily reaching for common ground just so much as like receiving a lot of beneficial education and help and, you know, not really, not really having to do a lot of work. They're just, you know, a lot of forgiveness and patience is required on behalf of uh, the cast members, whereas, you know, not so much from the other people. 
which was interesting and something I was blind to the first time I watched it. So lots of caveats, um, but overall really positive. If you only watch one episode, watch episode four, which is the episode in which they help a gay man come out to his family. Oh. He's, he's out to his friends, um, but he is not out to his family and... I mean, get the tissues ready because you will just cry. But it's an amazing, amazing 30 minutes of television and hilarious and wonderful. So if you only watch one episode of Queer Eye, watch episode four. <laughs> I watched the original Queer Eye. It was Did a you? ritual. Yeah, well, it was a ritual for me and my gay friends in college. So yeah. we would just watch Queer Eye. Is it the same Fab Five? Mm-mm. It's different. That's why I figured because I love them. I really yeah. love all five guys. Because I figure, yeah, they're all fifteen years older now than when the original Queer Eye. Oh God, I'm old. Um, <laughs> uh, I just I I always loved the original Queer Eye. Um, also, they were all white, and that was one thing. But like, um, what I love was, you know, they always it's Queer Eye for the straight guys. So they were trying to help this straight mm-hmm. dude generally it's a straight guy trying to like connect with his girlfriend or wife right. or whatever and to try and and that was kind of the original thing but my always, my favorite was i cannot remember his name because i believe he is now a judge on chopped or one of those cooking shows oh yes um uh, ted uh ted it is somebody ted. I can't remember his yeah. last name. He always I watched did, a lot of Chopped. <laughs> um, he always he was on the original Queer Eye. He was one mm-hmm. of the original Fab Five, and he always did food. Yeah, <laughs> just and he's making like he's like okay now, and it's like this like supremely complicated like thing, and this man could like barely boil pasta, and it's always <sighs> that poor Ted. Poor Ted was always being like, okay, and then we do this. I mean, sift the flour and the and the. He's trying to help out. The kitchen's just like, I'm lost. <laughs> like, <laughs> that was always that was always the one I I always oh, oh poor Ted. Yeah. Ted was always the one that I oh. felt like had to do so much work. Um, so I did watch the original Queer Eye, but I did not watch. I have not yet watched the reboot. So it's it's good. I love all five men. Um, I guess one of them is there's a black man named Karamo, and I guess he used to be on Real World and Road Rules back in the day. Um, really? Yeah, I don't remember him. There was a time when I watched a lot of that um, decades ago, but I don't remember him, so he must not have been on the seasons when I was watching it. Um, but I love him. He's wonderful, and he's kind of like just the life coach of it all. <laughs> yeah, there's always one that's like the like, life coach. Just yeah. a general life coach guy. There's a man, Jonathan, whose last name escapes me at the moment, but apparently he's famous for doing a recap show called Gay of Thrones, where he recaps Game of Thrones. Um, well, now I have to find this. Hair. It's amazing. He's amazing. They're all just so lovely and wonderful. I love all five of them. Um, and it is, it's a, it's a very joyful, wonderful, cathartic, like I cannot stress the tissues enough, (laughs) um, you know, way to spend an afternoon. So I recommend. So I have seen Black Panther three times now. Oh, I'm so jealous. I haven't seen it yet. So that is my off off menu recommendation. Um, I really loved it. It's it's great. I mean, I'm not really the person that is, should be 
be be out there and talking about how great this movie is, but it is really great. Um, and it's it's fun. It's funny. It has a lot of amazing women, which for you know, like Marvel movies have never done well on this front. Like no, ever, ever. Uh, I think it's a little bit different when you have perhaps directors of color because Thor Ragnarok had some pretty strong women but still it's just one whereas Black Panther has a lot of women of all different kinds of women and I liked I really enjoyed that about that show also I could not believe Chadwick Boseman was 41 I was like what what (laughs) really (laughs) yeah he's 41 (laughs) um also I really love Michael B. Jordan who doesn't yeah, I love that he's a nerd. That's like my favorite part <laughs> about Michael B. Jordan is that when he's like when he talks about it was one of those videos. I think it was um and oh and, and I had been down the spiral of just watching like interviews and behind mm-hmm. the scenes stuff with the entire cast of the Black Panther of uh, and and all, it's just it's so it's wonderful and delightful to watch. Um, but they did one of those things where it was like um, who would win in a fight you know, Wolverine or Black Panther and blah, 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 blah. And so it was Chadwick Boseman and Michael B. Jordan. And Chadwick Boseman is just kind of giving simple answers, but Michael B. Jordan is like a nerd. (laughs) And he knows like the history of comics and he apparently loves anime. And it's like a huge, and I'm just like, oh, this is so delightful. You you make me so happy. I love him so much. Um, My only this is the most nitpicky of nitpicky things from Black Panther is the fact that the one Korea, like the one Asian woman who has lines, cause they go to Korea actually in Black Panther. Um, and they talk to this bouncer outside of an underground gambling den and she is not Korean because her Korean was incomprehensible to me. It was like when we watched the early seasons of lost and I had to read oh, the no. subtitles <laughs> and I was like, what on earth are you saying? And I was like, you go all the way to Busan to film and you can't find a Korean actress for the bouncer? <laughs> That's like my one very minor nitpick, nitpick about Black Panther. Otherwise, I really, I really, really had a good time. Um, hence why I have been three times. Um, also, I think watching Black Panther in a theater full of people is really enjoyable. And especially when there's kids dressed up. I think it's the cutest thing in the world. Um, it's just, it's fun because it is a different experience. It's like when you go see Star Wars on opening weekend or whatever, and it's, you know, because people have a fan reaction and there's a, as much, it's as much of a communal viewing as it is you're just watching the movie. Yeah, there's an energy in the crowd. Mm-hmm. So that is my off-menu recommendation. I'm also halfway through Mass Effect 2, um, which is really good. Nice. Um, I, because I finished Mass Effect 1, and the first Mass Effect game didn't take me very long to finish. Also because I think, like, two-thirds of the way into the game, I realized there were all these, like, side missions that I didn't see and didn't do. So, um, but I think Mass, the first Mass Effect is is way more plot-driven in that Mm -hmm. this is, this next mission or assignment furthers the plot. So it moves the story forward very quickly. Whereas Mass Effect 2 is not really structured like that. As far as I can tell, it's like three big 
plot missions with, like, smaller sections of the plot, but, like, the vast majority of the assignments and missions that I'm doing are me getting to know my crew. And I think this, for that reason, I'm enjoying Mass Effect 2 so much more. Because for and it's and part of the reason it's taking me so long is because I want to do all my loyalty missions with each of my squad members. So like um there is something about the writing that even from the prologue of Mass Effect 2, I was much more quickly engaged than the prologue of or the beginning of the first Mass Effect game. And I'm not really sure why maybe the writing staff changed. Um, but I think there is a lot more focus on characters in a way that wasn't in the first game, and therefore I am far more invested. Um, I do love completing, I mean, but there's how many squad mates are there? There's like 10 squad mates, so I've like done like 10 loyalty missions, but I was like, no, I have to do all of them before I progress the next part of the game, because I don't want to lose any of them. Um, because I, I did read a little bit of the spoilers about what happens. So if they're not loyal to you, they may die. And I was like, no, I can't lose any of my squad mates. No man left behind. <laughs> no man left behind. Um, I also feel, I also get slightly irritated. And it would be, it would be, it would be, in fact, a very different experience, I think, playing this game as male Shepherd Because I'm currently playing as female Shepherd. Um, because... As it was with Dragon Age, not every romanceable character is available to you based on the gender you choose to play as. And, but I do believe the dialogue is entirely the same. But I don't know. I they're just they're. I just dislike that the in all the promotional material for Mass Effect, the default Shepard is always male. And I was like, but why? It's great playing as female Shepard. I I just like. I don't know. I feel like it does change the story when you make your protagonist female and change literally nothing else about it except for the love interests. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm enjoying that. My other thing is that is that I this is the most basic thing, but I go to a cycling bar <laughs> three times a week. And I love it, you guys. I didn't expect to. Um, exercise always sucks. There's, like, no way around it. Exercise always sucks. And I really do love yoga, and I've been practicing yoga for 20 years. So, but I've had to stop fairly recently because I have um, a weird connective tissue disorder. And just, it wasn't really good for for that, so I had to kind of take a step back from yoga and I'd never found anything else that I enjoyed doing. Like I will go to the gym, but it's a chore. Um, but I really love going to my cycling park class. Like, I mean, I look like a beast and I'm dying in it every, every time I go, but it's fun. Um, you know, it's fun and there's music and you know, it's like weird lighting changes and like you can quote race other people on your stationary bikes they put like your stats up on board and everything there's it's just i've been really enjoying myself because a lot of times like if i start up a new exercise and i will do it pretty consistently maybe for like a week or two and then completely drop off but yeah. it's been over a month now and i'm still going so yeah that's that's my other off menu recommendation nice all right. Uh, we don't have any questions, do we? We have two questions in the email. Oh, okay. 
Um, the first one is from Alicia, and she asks, if you're on sub and the editor you've submitted to leaves after showing interest in your book and forwards your submission on to their executive editor, is that likely to get lost in the shuffle or is there a chance it might still work out? So this actually just happened to me as an agent earlier this week. I got um, a notice from an editor that I have submitted a project to um, that she is leaving the imprint that she's at. And she had, I don't think she'd forwarded it on to her executive editor yet, but she had read a, por a portion of it and gotten back to us and said, I like this, I'm, you know, I'm interested, um, you know, but I'm leaving, I haven't, you know, I haven't finished it yet. And so the first thing that I did was just ask her what her plans are. And the three options, as far as I see it, are that either the editor leaves and just closes out their subs. And so essentially just passes on everything, closes everything out, and that's the end of that. Um, option two is that the editor um, passes it on to someone else in the house. And in that case, I think you should ask to be connected to that person. You know, ask the editor, okay, you know, put me in touch with whoever you sent it to so that I can follow up with them. I have had that happen in the past as well. Um, you know, but I, I would ask to be put directly in touch with the editor who is now going to be looking at the project so I could follow up. And you as the agent or the author? Me as the agent. This is me as the say. agent talking. You as the author shouldn't be doing any of this. <laughs> you should talk to your agent about their strategies. The agent should be doing this, not the author. Um, and then the third option um, is that the editor says, I'm closing it out here. When I get set up at my new imprint, I want you to resubmit to me there. So those are kind of the three possibilities. Um, and, and what I would do you know, if you're an author in this situation is talk to your agent and say, have you spoken to the editor? What is the game plan? Um, you know, because any of those things can happen and have happened to me, actually. I think I've had almost all of those situations where people just close it out and say, nope, consider it a pass. I'm done. Or yes, send it to me at my new place. Or I'm leaving. I can't take it with me, but so-and-so, you know, two cubes over would be interested in taking a look. I'm going to send her an email. Here you go. Um, so talk to your agent about what the strategy is. And a lot of it might depend, you know, on how that imprint is functioning, you know, how that works. The editor might not have control over what they get to do with it. Um, you know, so it can really vary, but you absolutely have a right to know what's going to happen with your sub. So you should ask your agent to find out. The question about whether or not it will be lost in the shuffle, I don't think it would be any more than any other... It wouldn't really be any different from any other submission process, to be completely mm -hmm. honest. You you just kind of submit and hope. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. That's kind of all you can do, and that's kind of really the only options that you have. And even as you know, an agent. And so I, yeah, I, whether or not it will be lost in the shuffle is almost a moot point, really. Uh, <laughs> um, somebody Sad, will, true. yeah, I mean, it, it just, <laughs> I was like, here we are again, brutally honest, but you know, um, but I also wouldn't worry about it. You know, they're forwarding it on to the executive editor. Then, it's not like they're just, you know, saying, no, I'm closed, I'm not going to consider it, and it's a rejection. 
they, you know, they want somebody to acquire your project. So I wouldn't look at it as a bad thing either. Yeah. The other question we got in our email is from Angie. And she says, Hi, Kelly and JJ. I'm working on a query letter and synopsis for a historical adult fantasy. My novel is written in the POV of three characters. I've written the query and synopsis referencing only one character's journey. She's certainly the main character, but I feel like I'm withholding vital information by not incorporating the other characters. Should I mention in my query letter and synopsis that the novel is written in multiple POVs? Hmm, that's actually a good one. Because here's here's an example, I suppose. Uh, if three is a little bit difficult, simply because if it was a if it was two points of view, then you would probably mention both, right? Because you have space in a query to do so. But if you have more than two, are are the I guess the question I have is that are these three POVs intertwined into one larger story? Mm-hmm. In which case, just stick with your main character and mention that it is also told from other points of view, maybe at the end or something. Um, because, for example, like if you were going to write a query about Lord of the Rings, this is kind of the example I'm using, and, and that one's a little bit different because it's, it's more of an omniscient point of view, but it's still, ultimately, the storyline you're going to pick out is Frodo and Sam's. Yeah. You know, even though there's a whole story about... Aragorn reclaiming the throne and, you know, there's, and Merry and Pippin and there, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's really a story about trying to defeat the Dark Lord Sauron. So you're going to stick with the character who has the most active role in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of my advice. I don't think that. Yeah. You know, I think given that it's a fantasy, that's probably the best advice. I just read a manuscript um, recently that was a contemporary story and it had three points of view. Um, and the query letter, uh, was written to include all three characters because they're all talking about the same series of events and it's just their different perspective on Mm -hmm. those series of events. So the query letter was able to be like, you know, here's the basic story involving these three people and the narration rotates, you know, between them. But I think with a fantasy, it's, it's the scope is probably much larger and so more things are going to be going on and people will be weaving in and out rather than having such a focused, you know, a single event to revolve around. So I think that JJ's probably right. Um, I would, I would stick with your main character's story and then perhaps mention, you know, in one line or two that there are other points of view involved. It's also that I really would stick with, unless it is the same story from three different points of view. The fact that you say you have a main character is probably telling to me that you should just write it from their POV. And it doesn't matter if you break POV, if it's still their journey for the most Mm -hmm. part. You know, and the other ones are supporting storylines. That's you don't need to mention that in a query, and I don't think you would be 
you wouldn't be querying under false pretenses. Like, no, I don't think an agent is going to read a manuscript and be like, well, they didn't mention the others, so... Yeah. No, you know? it's. It, it, I think it's okay to just kind of focus on your main character and their journey. Mm-hmm. So... That's it for questions. All right, do we have any new reviews? I don't think so. I think we are all caught up on our reviews. All right. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be talking about the high concept pitch and why it works. Now, we've actually covered the high concept idea before, but I think we really kind of more or less defined it and not necessarily dissected what it is and why it works the way it does. So that's our episode next week. So, um, Also, Kelly and I are... We are trying to do a quarterly query critique. <laughs> yes. Pseudo we are. quarterly. Pseudo quarterly. Um, so we are soliciting queries that you would like us to critique. Uh, we will probably critique them at the end of March, beginning of April. So go ahead and send them to us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com with the subject line query critique. Um, but as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review and get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. And in the face of um, eschewing all the advice that we just gave today, I definitely read my reviews. So So help a girl out. (laughs) If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawl Blog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Publishing Crawl. You can follow me, JJ, at SJ Jones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at BookishChick on Twitter or Instagram or my website, penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Retribution Rails, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com, send us an ask through Tumblr, or on Twitter using the hashtag AskPubCrawl. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. So what do we want to talk about next week? We didn't resolve this issue. No, we didn't. Last time. Hey, Brian, what are we going to do tonight? Uh, (laughs) The same thing we do every night. (laughs) 